When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Originals. We're going to go now to the big Cypress Seminole Indian Reservation in Florida. There was the biggest traffic jam that we know of in the country was caused uh, on what's sometimes called Alligator Alley, which is South Florida's uh, east to west highway. And it was jammed today with fans of the fish going to the big Seminole Indian Reservation to hear a fish concert. Um, if you don't know fish, uh, think Grateful Dead, at least in terms of their dedicated followers. And 75,000 people, it must have been the earliest sold-out concert of anywhere on this Millennium Eve celebration. And they sang for us out on that reservation and as well for their devotedly fervent fans. That was ABC News anchor Peter Jennings getting things generally right about Fish's Big Cypress Festival. And uh, you're going to be in front of about 100 million people or something like that. <laughs> Moments earlier, Fish being Fish, or with a nod to Mr. Jennings, The Fish being The Fish, Trey Anastasio had something to say to the band's audience about what was to follow. Okay, Mike and I were just talking. We have two minutes till this thing starts. That actually it would be kind of funny if, like, we'll play a song, right? We'll play a short song so that there's time for you guys to react at the end. But it's something that we wanted to do on our live album that we never got around to. We are thinking it'd be weird if instead of clapping and cheering, you know, everybody did some odd thing like, like scream cheesecake or something. Everybody, you know, instead of clapping at the end of the song, you know, just say cheesecake once or something like that. That's what we'll do. We'll do it. Just, we'll stop it. And then everybody just go, cheesecake. And then just be silent after that, you know? Like, no extraneous clapping or anything. And you don't have to smile either, you know? Just like straight, dead straight face. Just, cheesecake! What happens when you light out for the territory, Huckleberry Finn style, looking to pursue your path, and then the rest of the world catches on? I'm Dean Budnick, and this is Long May They Run. Here's Trey, looking back on the moment that he encouraged the crowd to yell cheesecake. I was like, oh my God, the whole world's going to be watching. We had the biggest ticketed concert on earth for the millennium. In fact, that's in there. And no one noticed at all. But there were all these concerts all over the place because it was the new millennium. But this is the great thing about being in Fish at that point in time, is that we just, this had been going on year after year. We're just like completely off the fucking grid. But somehow along the line, Peter Jennings was going to go around the world to like Elton John and, and Sting over here. And, you know, Bono is, you know, in Africa or wherever the hell he was. <laughs> and, and now we're going to this swamp in Florida. And here's the fish. That's what he said. It's the fish. Who? When you see the thing, you can see he's like, who the hell is... There's 80,000 people in a swamp. What the hell? You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it's... 
So I just wanted to mess him up even more. I was like, I gotta think of something weird that'll sound really wrong. You know, that's always the thinking. It's like, everybody just say cheesecake. And that was like kind of a spur of the moment thing. I don't know if it worked, I don't even remember. But I do remember like getting the message from the side of the stage. Like, you guys are on worldwide TV for the next two minutes. It's like, okay. <laughs> like, okay, you're off. Nobody's watching anymore. You can go back to just doing that weird thing you do with the jam thing or whatever. As it turned out, by the way, ABC cut away too soon, missing out on any cheesecake action. Or perhaps, from their perspective, they cut away at precisely the right moment. I'm sure that someone in the control room was perfectly aware of the Cheesecake Initiative because they likely had the live feed up ready to cut over to Big Cypress, which is why it didn't go out live over the air. I'll tell you though, in my opinion, if this were to happen in 2019, the person sitting in that control room would be a fish fan, or at least would be familiar enough with the group to give them the benefit of the doubt and broadcast the cheesecake moment. And that's gonna be the focus of this episode, how the fish experience, and more specifically, the fish festival experience, began to spread out into the world and impact other events. One more thought before we return to Big Cypress. Trey's decision to call an audible for a potential prank in the middle of the band's epic seven and a half hour set demonstrates something else at the heart of the fish ethos. Take your work seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. To my mind, there is no other band out there that has better embodied this principle consistently over the past few decades. It's something we'll come back to time and again over the course of this season. Keep that in mind, as Trey describes the process by which the group wound up celebrating New Year's Eve on an Indian reservation in Florida, beginning with the discussion between the band and manager John Paluska. The mother of all festivals was Big Cypress for us. That was just indescribably beautiful. I remember being in John's office in 1998 and saying, we got to play outside on the millennium all night. And he's just laughing. Like, you cannot play outside on New Year's Eve. It's going to snow. It's going to rain. It's impossible. And then we went through this long years in advance. This must have been a year and a half before the millennium that we started planning this thing. Looking for a place where we could do an outdoor overnight millennium show, right? So the first place was Hawaii, and it was going to be called the Big Kahuna, (laughs) right? And we went as far as putting holds on all of these airplanes, as many airplanes as he could possibly put holds. John would start planning this stuff way out, way in advance, and calling me and just saying, this is never going to work. There's way too many people to move. We found a space and we were going to do it in Hawaii and it was going to have limited tickets and all this stuff. And it just kept getting more and more complicated, I think because of the airplanes mostly. So then we were talking one day. We were in an airport with the band and Fish was sitting across from me, John Fishman. And he always reads these books about World War II. And he was reading this book and it was called Abandoned Ship. So this must have been like 98, 99. And I'm looking at it. It was about a boat that went down in World War II and what happened to the guys? Or they had to eat each other or something. You know, like something like that. He's always telling me. He starts talking about this, telling the three of us. And we all just have to sit there and listen. 
they ate the dogs when they were in the snow or something like that. Anyway, I'm looking at this thing. It's like, oh, a band on ship. <laughs> like I said, <laughs> a band on ship. It's like, oh my God, that's it. A band on ship. So I remember calling John. This is all completely true. You got to put holds on cruise ships. So he put holds on every possible cruise ship. And we were going to do the festival in like the Caribbean on a cruise ship. And I think Jam Cruise is a lovely thing. It's a wonderful thing. But I need to say, just for history's sake, that our name was better. I think it should have been called Abandon Ship. So if you're going to take the cruise ship idea, you might as well. I like that much better. That always kind of like in the back of my mind, I've always wanted to say that. Like it was cooler when it was Abandon Ship. But anyway... (laughs) But that didn't work out because it wasn't enough people and it was just logistically. And then Chip, our booking agent, or John, found this place, Big Cypress Seminole Reservation in Florida. And, oh, God, I get chills thinking about it. It just fell into place like magic. Much of the existing site was marshland, which offered both opportunities and special challenges. Visual design artist Russ Bennett recalls that his crew was on site for five weeks in an attempt to help set the tone. It was a Seminole reservation, its own sovereign thing in the Everglades. It had its own environmental challenges and opportunities, all of that. And, you know, the band wants always to provide this incredible experience. So there were little uh, canals and whatnot. So it started by doing a layout of where a village could be. And that was the first time when we said we'd been doing the things at Clifford's Ball, Lemon Wheel, and went inside the concert venue. Let's bring what we do out to the fans. So we called it the Delta, where we went out and built that sort of city with a boardwalk on the canal. And then on the other side, it was southern mansions and the time clock and the time machine and the time capsule and you know a big garden you could walk around in and and think about stuff and then we cleared the woods out there and just put red lights in them in the bayou it was awesome and you know we took chiquis which are sort of palm front roofed buildings you know native to uh, seminole architecture construction. We use those both as personal chiquis and that way of uh, building stuff. So we were somewhat in tune with our environment. Trey recalls an idea from Lars Fisk, the artist and sculptor on the design team who we introduced in episode one. Lars had this idea about something that he used to see when he traveled in the south, which is like attempts at being ornate humans trying to make these ornate buildings that getting taken over by moss and you know, the futility of the human attempt to overcome nature. The message on the millennium of these beautiful, ornate Victorian houses being eaten and pulled back into the swamp. In the middle of this swamp that was really a swamp that we tried to turn into a city. You know what I mean? Which is probably a swamp again. One of the coolest ideas that did not happen that, that I remember floating around was that we were going to build the walls of the venue out of ice. So that when you walked in, there were walls, but by the end of the three days, they just melted. And there was conversations about 
how to transport the ice and it was glued together and they couldn't get it in. That was such a cool idea. And then the other idea that we did do, if you look at an overhead shot, was that the venue would be round so that you would have no perspective about, let me go over by that wall from the inside. It was circular. And we did do that. And I think that was really a success. Just the feeling. It's really, really incredible experience. Big Cypress certainly embodied the concept, if you build it, they will come. The site spanned 1,000 acres and included roads, gridded neighborhoods, a radio station, a post office, even a 400-foot-long boardwalk that ran alongside an existing canal. Here's David Steinberg, board member of the Mockingbird Foundation, a fan-run charitable organization that supports music education for children. They redefined so many aspects of the scene just by saying, this is what we're going to do. We're going to draw 75 to 80,000 people to an Indian reservation in the middle of Florida on New Year's 1999. No one's ever heard of us, but we're going to do it anyway. And we all showed up. And nothing else, the spirit of rock and roll. Someone just saying, this is my path. We're going to follow it. We don't care where it leads. Maybe five people will show up. Maybe 100,000 will show up and have it work. Here's a little story that's kind of related, but kind of will click in. Greensboro, 2003. Fish sold out the Greensboro Coliseum. And I went out to the concourse area to get myself a drink, get myself a bottle of water. And a woman who was manning the staff looked at me and goes, I've never seen this place so sold out. What are their hits? And I stopped and said, they don't have any. This is all word of mouth. And... It's not the usual rock and roll path. So in that sense, I can see someone's like, well, they never had a hit single. I never hear them on the radio. You could go your entire life. But they are so crucial in so many other ways. They, they redefine the modern festival. As for Big Cypress, the event seemed blessed. The weather was accommodating, and there was an animated, anticipatory, yet peaceful vibe throughout. In that self-built city on the swamp, with over 80,000 occupants over four nights, there were only three arrests. Indeed, almost everything seemed to work out, although there were some hiccups along the way. Production manager Haddon Hipsley recalls some complications with the gag at midnight, which involved the band members boarding a fanboat driven by tour manager Richard Glasgow from the rear of the venue onto the stage, and along the way, the sides of the boat gave way, revealing that the band was seated in the same hot dog that it had used on New Year's Eve 1994 to fly across the Boston Garden. To quote the lyrics from a more recent fish song, everything's right, so just hold tight. Richard was driving the pickup truck that had the hot dog on it that started out as a, an airboat. And, I mean, that whole thing was, if something could go wrong, it did. But the end result was it all worked out well, and everybody loved it. But, you know, it's we never thought, okay, we have to light the band as they go from the back of the woods across the field towards the stage. Let's hit them with follow spots. All sounds great until Richard's driving the uh, truck and says, I'm blinded by the follow spots and can't see where I'm driving through the crowd. You know, so we had to adjust that during the show. And then some of the wooden structure that was holding the frame of the airboat onto the truck did not fall off the way it was planned. Russ Bennett's crew, some of them are chasing the truck with chainsaws and the other half is chasing the people with chainsaws saying, bad idea, don't, don't try to chainsaw it off while we're running through the crowd. So then 
you know, as the truck approaches the stage and they have to dock into a portion of the stage, we're kind of like, all right, we got two two by fours stuck on there still that have to come off or we're not going to get the band deep enough into the stage to step off the hot dog onto the stage platform. So Richard had to give the uh, truck a little bit more gas to snap the two by four off. And we're just kind of like, hope the band is holding on. And it all worked great. A lot of the ideas started off as experiential, you know, like, how could this be even cooler for people? That's where um, Big Cypress came from. The original idea was outside, wake up, have the sun come up on the year 2000, and we've all pulled an all-nighter together because it's such a bonding experience. Like, when you go camping with your friends and the sun comes up, like, you made it. You made it through the night. It's, you ne- those are your friends for the rest of your life. The conversation was, if we pull an all-nighter with 80,000 people, We're like bonded for life with these people. When that sun came up, I'll never forget it. I don't even remember how we played. I didn't even think it even, that is not the part I remember. I just remember looking at the faces of these people in the audience. The sun came up and we had all been up all night together. It was just indescribable. So bizarre and so bonding. Such a human experience to stay up all night with somebody. You know what I mean? Because I had it once with a couple of friends in high school. One of them was Tom, who I write songs with. And I remember because it was started raining and we were trying to get a fire going in the rain. And we got like this little fire going. And then the sun came up and it's like, that's it. You're bonded for life. I mean, I felt like that with 80,000 people. It was crazy. As Trey describes the experience, one can understand how 10 months later, the band decided to hit pause. After soul bonding with 80,000 other people, where do you go from there? For Fish, there was no unified answer, and the group scattered to the winds, taking a 26-month break from live performance following their show on October 7th, 2000. There would be no additional Fish Fests until August 2003. However, the festival landscape was about to change. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Rick Farman was attending a Massachusetts boarding school in November 1992 when his roommate brought him to his first ever fish show at the Capitol Theater in Portchester, New York. He invited me to come home with him for a weekend, and one of the things he had planned was going to a fish show, and I had no idea who fish was, but I went along with him, and, you know, it was a crazy visceral experience. I remember walking in, and walking up on Mike's side and just almost instantly 
my mind being exploded that like I knew music was powerful, but I had never really felt that sort of visceral over the top music experience before. And, you know, the next day I literally called up my dad and asked him if I could buy a bass. And he said, yes. So I started that early part of my music exploration. And so for the rest of my high school years, I was really focused on learning the bass, playing music, putting bands together. As you might imagine, being probably a little bit more the business person of trying to get us gigs and stuff like that and organizing some events for us to play at. And that was really transformative for me. Rick then attended Tulane University in New Orleans and quickly embraced the city's rich musical tapestry. In fact, on one such night, he had an epiphany. I remember very specifically being taken to go see George Porter play at a bar called Muddy Waters, which doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, for those who don't know, George Porter is the bass player of the meters, you know, one of the real treasures of New Orleans music, just a legend and one of the greatest guys. And you know, he's an, this, just this incredible bass player. And I remember watching him and being like, I can never do that. Like, that's for somebody else to do. I'm never going to get to that point. And it, w- it was almost in that moment that I realized that, you know, my path was going to be more in, in supporting, you know, music, not being on the stage. He initially pursued that path while still a student by approaching recent Tulane grad Jonathan Mayers, who, despite his young age, was then booking the area venue Tipitina's. It was a unique situation where the club was about to be sold. Nobody really wanted the job of being the booker there. John had put on a benefit show that I had was very aware of because it was really cool. He did this show, and it was actually the first time the Superfly name was used. It was with George Porter, Kermit Ruffins, Rebirth Brass Band, and Wild Magnolias. Rick had seen the jazz funk trio Medeski Martin and Wood open for Fish at the State Palace Theater in New Orleans one of the band's rare shows during this era with an opening act. Farman was taken with MMW, and when he saw they were scheduled to play Tipitina's, he approached Mayers and offered his help. I walked into John's office and basically said, do you need any help promoting this show? And you know, his attitude at the time you know, was, sure, like knock yourself out. I need all the help I can get here. And I suggested to him to book Michael Ray and the Cosmic Crew as an opener. I knew that there was a connection between Trey and Michael Ray and, and Fish in general and Medeski Martin Wood. And so I thought that would be sort of a good dynamic. And he took the advice there. And the show, I think he thought it was going to sell 300 tickets or something. And it ended up selling like 600. And after that, he asked me if I wanted to help him promote other shows at Tips. And for me at the time, it was just like, you know, the opportunity to get free tickets, essentially. That's all I cared about. And then new people bought the club. They didn't really appreciate John and I's youthful exuberance, let's call it. And we decided to leave 
really he did, and I kind of followed him. And we started to think about doing concerts. And so John reached out to his childhood best friend, Rich Goodstone, and I reached out to a friend of mine who had been helping us with some of the marketing when we were at Tips because he had a car, and having a car was sort of unusual for somebody being in college down there in New Orleans. And so Kerry Black was that guy, and he came on and likewise joined the team. Here's Kerry. Yes, that old Jeep Cherokee Sport 93 did a lot of grunt work for Superfly, that's for sure. Got a lot of Tulane kids psyched about the events we were doing, for sure. I was a finance major <laughs> at Tulane, of which I use next to none at this point. And uh, my whole thought in life was, hey, I'm just going to go into finance, make a bunch of money so I can see all the shows I want to see. That was my stupid plan at the time. And uh, luckily, we did the show, and it went really well. Made a little bit of money, so we were like, oh, wow, let's do this again. We started to put on shows during Jazz Fest. And Jazz Fest became sort of for us a real cornerstone of what we were doing. We were bringing bands from all over the country to play at different late night venues across New Orleans. And a lot of this was drafting off the fact that Fish had played a very special show at Jazz Fest that got a lot of fish heads down to New Orleans and got them interested in coming to Jazz Fest year after year. So, you know, following sort of that early mode of doing shows during Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest, we started to become a regular concert promoter in New Orleans. One of Superfly's signature events was known as the Super Jam, in which they would ask some performers who had never collaborated before to take the stage together. In the spring of 2000, they approached Les Claypool's manager, David Lefkowitz, to see if Les might be interested in participating, which led to a fascinating project called Oysterhead. I don't know, it must have been 24 hours later, he called me back and he's like, I got some news for you. Uh, Les loves it. And he just talked to Trey and Trey's into it too. And I think a couple days later, I got a call, you know, here's some other good news. Those guys called Stuart Copeland from the police and he's in for playing drums with them. And then this was way beyond anything I had as an expectation when I first called up Dave to think about, you know, doing Super Jam with Les. So I got to know through that experience, I got to know Richard Glasgow and John Paluska really well. And those relationships that were created through Oysterhead became really important. The Superfly During Jazz Fest series soon encompassed 30 to 40 shows at 10 to 15 different venues, drawing upwards of 30,000 concertgoers. And eventually, the team decided to set their sights beyond New Orleans as they contemplated a summer festival that they would launch in June 2002 as Bonnaroo. The fact that Fish decided to take a hiatus created this, you know, window that a lot of the people who were used to going to those events and who were some of the same people who'd come to our Jazz Fest events, they were looking for something to do during the summer. And it was in that sort of atmosphere that we got connected to Ashley Capps, who is a promoter based in Knoxville and, you know, really had a great reputation of being a creative promoter and producer throughout the Southeast. We had also met through one of our Super Jam events, Corn Capshaw, who was the manager of Dave Matthews Band. We created a business plan. We brought it to Corin, and he just got it really quickly and you know, helped us fund and launch it. When Fish was planning their own festivals, they often took inspiration from the book I mentioned in episode one called A Pattern Language, which provides a series of reference points for constructing communities. 
There's also a companion piece to that work titled The Timeless Way of Building, which explores how the pattern language can be best utilized. So too, the Bonnaroo Music Festival is an event that built on the pattern language of fish. I remember a few different conversations with Paluska specifically where I said, well, you know, who did this for you? Who did that for you? And he was really gracious along with Richard. They were very gracious of like, well, you should talk to this person if you want to find out about water systems. You should talk to this person if you're, you know, curious about, you know, how to do concessions. So they had put this amazing team together and that team was hungry to work. And so they really led us to a bunch of the core people that helped us launch Bonnaroo. Fish's longtime production manager, Haddon Hipsley, became our production manager. Haddon recalls. Well, we didn't know what to expect. Richard and I, Russ Bennett and Bart Butler, security director at the time, got a call from these guys that we've never heard of down in New Orleans. And it was Rick Farman and Jonathan Mares and Rich Goodstone. And they wanted to do a festival in Tennessee. They've been to fish shows. They like the fish festival type vibes. Will you guys do and help us produce a festival for ourselves? And We weren't familiar with the site. We saw the site, went down, and it was the day we went down to do a site survey. And it was that same time we were looking at the site that the Superfly team said, do you guys mind coming into this meeting with some local government officials and letting them know your experience and, you know, what you feel that this site is capable of doing. And in turn, it wasn't, I don't remember, it was Jonathan Mayers or Rick Farman, but they basically introduced us to the local officials saying, yeah, we're going to do this festival and here's our team and they're going to answer all the questions you've got. They connected us with our first project manager and a guy by the name of Rob Napier, who had been the guy heading all the operations for the Fist Festivals. And then really cool and importantly, they connected us with Russ Bennett, who was the visual and creative person who helped Fish recognize a lot of the creations off the stage that manifested at Fish shows. He became that same facilitator for us. He became an amazing collaborator and friend. Rob called me up, asked if I wanted to be involved. Went down and met him, said, these are young guys, these are, they're passionate, you know, they love music, all this kind of stuff. Sure, let's see, this could be fun. And luckily enough, I said, you know, these guys are either going to flame out after one year or they're good for at least 20 because, you know, they're in their 20s. And that turns out to be marvelously correct. Russ helped the Bonnaroo team create a section of the festival site known as Senaru, which includes some of the unique signature Bonnaroo features, such as the fountain, which was dramatically re-envisioned every year, and the arch that led into the main concert field and also received an annual refresh. Other experiential elements felt familiar to folks who had attended the fish festivals, including the radio station, post office, and the vibe emanating from the community gathering sites. There were familiar faces, too the band members themselves. Fish made three appearances at Bonnaroo in 2009, 2012, and 2019. Trey Anastasio was on hand the very first year and also offered a nod to the festival's origins through an Oysterhead set in 2006. Mike Gordon has appeared with a few of his solo projects, and in 2004, Paige McConnell made his initial appearance at Bonnaroo. Rick Farman has never been reluctant to acknowledge Fish's importance to him and the fest. 
I think this is exactly what was going on with us then, is that, yes, we had a lot of drive and ambition. Yes, we had a vantage point of being the fan. Bonnaroo, in many ways, was built for us, right? We would have been the first people that wanted to go to something like this. In fact, we did in many ways. We went to Coachella 99, all four of us, you know, more as a kind of cathartic thing for the four of us to have a fun experience together. But look, Fish being on a hiatus then and us being able to leverage the amazing team that they had built to put on their festivals can't understate how impactful that was on us launching Bonnaroo successfully. It was a huge part of it. And it's why every year on opening day at Bonnaroo, I wear my fish socks. It's amazing that he's kept those things and there's no holes and and they still smell okay. I don't know. It's pretty incredible that they've lasted this long. But uh, it has been a great tradition for 18 years. And, uh, you know, hats off to him. We, we always all go up to the front gate and watch the first fans come in. We do it every year, and every year he's wearing those socks without fail. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases, from m and rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Bonnaroo is by no means the only festival that sprouted from the fish events. Governor's Ball has a direct lineage via Bonnaroo, as Tom Russell worked on the operations side for six years before he decided to start a new company with two of his friends, just as Rick Farman and Jonathan Mayers had once decided to start a new company with two of their friends. You know, I got to a point in my life where I wanted to be in those closed-door partner conversations. So I made a few phone calls to friends of mine in the industry and kind of saw where they were at with their respective positions and did they want to try something on their own. And um, I ended up connecting with or chatting with my high school roommate and one of my best friends, Jordan Wallowitz, who was in the music industry and working on the talent side. So he brought that to the table. I had the experience kind of building and, and managing a show. We needed a third business partner to spread the work out, and I ended up calling a dear friend of mine named Yoni Reisman, and he was finishing up grad school and didn't know what he wanted to do next, but this was an interesting idea. So we all ended up leaving what we were involved with to start Founders and launch the first Governor's Ball. In part, Tom drew on his experiences watching the Bonnaroo lineup come together. And you could tell that those guys programmed that festival with every individual set in mind. You know, they knew which bands would be good during the day, which bands would be good at night, and they knew which would make for a great late night show. It was very much so a hand-picked, very carefully curated event, and, and that's passed on to us and what we do today with GovBall. You know, we have a grid of every single set time. Think of any performance schedule that you would see for any festival, and it's just blank. And we fill in each individual slot with different acts, and you know, we think about what it would be like to see that act at that time of day on that specific stage. And that was taken from Bonnaroo. 
You know, I remember seeing the talent grids that mayors would put together and thinking about, wow, this is such a unique way of looking at of how to program a festival and how to set up the set times. This perspective also was informed by a significant fish history. So Jordan and I actually did Summer Tour 2003, which was a 21-date tour that ended at it, and that was my first fish festival experience. Our ethos is, you're doing great, because that's such a, a fun thing for folks to say to each other when they're actually doing great, or really when they're not, as a way to get them to smile and rethink things and to, to relax. And, you know, it's not too dissimilar from going to a fish festival and seeing one of the amazing art pieces that Russ Bennett creates that gets people to smile and to think. And, you know, those positive vibes are all contagious. And Russ puts such attention to detail with that stuff. And whenever we're looking at what art to feature at the festival, I always go back and think about, you know, what creative, weird, yet fun shit did Fitch do at their events? And uh, just kind of build off of that. What's more, the GovBall team has attempted to forge a more direct connection as well. A lot of people probably don't know this, but we have made Fish multiple offers to headline Governor's Ball over the years. And it's come from a few different places. Number one, we're huge fans. And number two, it's different. And it would be so cool in our eyes to put Fish in a, to have them play a different play in this market. It's not the Garden, it's not SPAC, it's not Jones Beach, it's different. And it's them with a bunch of other different bands from different genres. We thought it would be a, a good way to expose them to a new audience and to expose a new audience to them. Jay Sweet, the executive producer of the Newport Folk Festival, has his own association with fish events. Sweet has revitalized Newport to the point where it currently sells out months in advance without naming a single act. When he took the reins in 2008, the first artist he sought to book was Trey Anastasio during a time when Fish was on its second hiatus. He explains that the experience of entering the Clifford Ball still carries resonance for him. It was the first time I believed in the Willy Wonka line, we're the music makers and we're the dreamers of dreams. It was the first time I believed it, like truly believed that you could manifest a dream and make it reality. because. They just created a world where they weren't beating you over the head with it. It was all very nuanced. And it was one of those things where it was a culmination of a group of people having a dream and then just saying, well, why can't we just try to see if it'll work? And I just still, my head has never fully digested that. And I think that Willy Wonka quote really has encapsulated what I've gleaned from being someone who loves the band. Of course, through all of this, Fish continues to inspire through their festival events. After taking some time off during a second hiatus from 2004 to 2009, the band blended the Halloween traditions that we'll explore in a future episode with its festival objectives for an event on October 30th through November 1st, 2009 in Indio, California. The group then resumed its summer festivals in 2011 at Watkins Glen International, which has served as the band's locale ever since. The upstate New York Raceway hosted Fish's Super Bowl in 2011 and Magna Ball in 2015. We loved Super Bowl, we loved Magna Ball, and I remember having a feeling after Magna Ball where just how special it is, because what we do is so unique and it's it's such an emotional thing for us. And 
to then be able to play our music at our own event, at our own festival of our own doing, it makes it feel even better somehow, even more special than it does just going out and playing amphitheaters and arenas and that sort of thing. Three years after Magnaball, the band formulated ambitious plans for Curveball, which was set for Watkins Glen on August 17th to the 19th. Unfortunately, due to torrential rains and area flooding, which compromised the drinking water, the band's 2018 event was canceled by the New York State Department of Health moments prior to soundcheck. When everything there is set up by design for us with our people and our, our input, it's so special. And that's part of what made it so sad when, when that show was canceled, when Curveball was canceled, when we were thrown a curveball, as it were. I was on my way to, to soundcheck. I was walking toward the stage, and that's when I was told. So we, you know, I had just flown in that day, and we were going to go do soundcheck, as we always do, do a long soundcheck at our festivals, because that's, that's a part of the experience always has been also that the day before, we do an extra long soundcheck, and we broadcast it over the the radio station, the bunny, and it's one of my favorite parts of of the festivals is getting to go play those sound checks actually. So it was it was a sad moment. But you know, it was everyone rallied and it wasn't a tragic moment, it was just a sad moment and everyone moved past it. See, this is that weird fish thing again about process. It's very visceral and now it always is. So okay. Here's what happened with curveball, curveball got canceled. We had this midnight thing planned with this giant sphere and all these extraneous spheres. And we had done this whole thing with tunnels and filming and we were going to be in the fucking... It was going to be unbelievable. And it was all just garbage within one minute. And the next morning I woke up and it was really sad and everybody was worried about the people and how far... Oh my God, it was just sucked. But then I thought, well... There's two ways to go here. Either like cry in your milk or do something even cooler. And that's just what they did. Something even cooler. Join us for the episodes to follow as we'll share that story and many more. Touching on the power of place, fish as an art band, cultural capital, FOMO, gags and goofs from both sides of the stage, the musician as curator, couch tour, and plenty of other topics here on Season 1 of Long May They Run. Long May They Run is a creation and production of C13 Originals, executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, Lloyd Lockeridge, and me. Season 1 is written by me and directed by Lloyd Lockeridge. Produced by Perry Crowell. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production coordination by Terrence Malingone. And production support by Sean Cherry. Creative artwork by Kurt Courtney, press by Hilary Schuff, and marketing by Josephina Francis. The theme song is Right Off, written by Miles Davis, and performed by Kyle Hollingsworth, Jake Sinninger, Dave Watts, and Garrett Sayers, and mixed by Andrew Dros Liposchuk. A special thank you to Rich Schaefer and to the band, band management, and all who participated in this season.
I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.